0: Marriage of a Thousand Lies author S.J. Sindhu returns to the Vulgar Geniuses podcast with their sophomore novel Blue Skinned Gods. In India, people make pilgrimages to an ashram to visit Kalki, a Tamil child born with blue skin, believed to be the incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu. His parents make money from the blessings and miracles Kalki grants to the believers, but he soon doubts his divinity as he watches his relationships fall apart. Sindhu shares with us the dynamics of intertwining religious history with gender and sexuality, their newfound adventure after being in lockdown during the start of the pandemic, and whatever became of their beer-making aspirations. Stay with us on the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code Genius to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of the vulgar geniuses podcast we're your hosts my name is denny and i am veronica and today we are joined this is a very special episode um because we are going to be talking to none other than sj sindhu they are the author of a wonderful novel called blue skin gods and the reason why this is special is because sj sindhu was our very first guest on our podcast when we had people that was willing to talk to us many moons ago (laughs) (laughs) but if you haven't been with us since uh the the year of the pandemic starting that's all um, right (laughs) it's okay we're gonna we're gonna give you a little info on who uh S.J. Sindhu is S.J. Sindhu is the author of the novel Marriage of a Thousand Lies which won the Publishing Triangle Edmund White Debut Fiction Award was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award and was an ALA Stonewall Honor Book as well as the hybrid chapter Books. I once met you but you were dead. And dominant genes. Sindhu holds an MA in English from the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, and a PhD in English and Creative Writing from Florida State University. Sindhu is an assistant professor of English at Virginia Commonwealth University. Welcome back. Oh, we get to say that. Welcome, Welcome back to the show. Back.
1: Thank you so much i'm so happy to be here
0: we are so happy to have you here um before i pass it off to to
1: denny i was just curious are you still in canada or are you now back in the states i am in richmond virginia right now um teaching at virginia commonwealth so
0: oh, okay well welcome back welcome back it's good to have you in the same areas uh, time and co- zone and congratulations and, um on coming back
2: well you know to the states <laughs> <and I know. laughs> but it, it always comes with a prize <laughs> yes with all the bs
0: that the country has to offer
1: yes wow. yes for sure
0: yes <laughs> so <laughs> So we're gonna. Uh, I'm gonna pass it off to to Denny. Um, she's got some questions. You were the first person that we ever did like hot seat questions for. So we we kind of went back and retuned some of those things. So yeah, Denny, it's your it's your go, my yeah, dear. Yeah, you you had a post vax road trip,
2: like in yeah. your, in the Insta. I'm sure that was fun. But what was the most exciting
1: thing about seeing the world again? Oh my gosh, that was last year. It still feels. Like it was so close. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I realized was that I wasn't a deadbeat. Like <laughs> I had, I had, I had just accepted that I was just like this person who stayed in the house and like who didn't write and who like just I don't know like cleaned things and <laughs> watched watched like Netflix and just like. I don't know, shuffled around the house in slippers and like never saw anybody. Like I just accepted that about myself. And then like we went on this road trip and I was like, oh, my God, like I get to talk to people. I get to be clever and like people are great and people are funny. And and I love like it was I love hanging out with people. I love hanging out with artists and I love hanging out with writers and I love hanging out with people who are smart and funny and who are thinking about the world in interesting ways Mm. and that has rejuvenated my writing practice in ways that I never expected never expected I, I I don't think I would I don't think any of us are the same person at the you know at the other end of the pandemic than than we were at the beginning um but I think especially for writers especially for me I'm definitely not the same writer I was
0: yeah. Um, yeah, these last two years, I'm sure, um, injected a lot of change within your your life and your career and everything. So um, which is why we're on the show. We're going to talk to you all about those things. Yes. <laughs> um, the
2: last time we talked, you were making beer. Have you made more? And what is your favorite, like, quote
1: unquote, flavor or creation? Um, I have not. So that was like a pandemic thing that I did um I've made beer before like way before the pandemic I used to make beer um and then I in the pandemic it sort of resurfaced um now it's it's dormant I'm sure it will resurface again it like resurfaces every like four or five years so right now it's it's you know one of my students um his name is Noah Farberman uh named my my beer uh, um sj sin brew oh that's love. cute it's adorable and i'm like okay so i started to label all my beers and i made a bunch of mead um which i think is the best thing i've ever made apparently i'm a better mead maker than a beer brewer mm. so whatever whatever it's fine
0: <laughs> so your your beer was on <laughs> banana bread. yes <laughs> we made a lot of banana bread oh, a lot
2: a but lot. shout out to noah i like that title that brand i'm sorry brand um so <laughs> any new hobbies besides traveling that you've um, I,
1: really, I i got into at the like tail end of the pandemic i got into like bespoke gift wrapping Mm-hmm. that was really a thing like I was like okay I'm gonna make like this sp- like I'm gonna make cards I'm gonna I'm like gonna wrap things in a extremely perfect way I don't know it, it's a thing I, <laughs> I, I I spent way too much money on 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 gift wrap <laughs> <laughs> and, and now I have like the skills and the the things to make um to wrap any gift that i might want to ever wrap in my life
0: that could be your side hustle during christmas time the yeah. school is out <laughs> you know how, like you can go to the shopping stores and just be like i need this gift wrapped and you're like i got you i got you <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, now that we got that on out of the way, why don't you talk to us about what uh, Blue Skin Gods is all about for the people who haven't had a chance to read it? And also, I just want them to know that we're going to be going deep into this book. And so, if you haven't read it, I suggest that you turn this off, go get the book, read it. It's a it's a dollar ninety nine right now online. Like you can you can go ahead and get it uh, online. But if you have it and you've read it, uh, let's let's find out what it's all about. So why don't you give people a little
1: taste? So Blue Skin Gods is about a young boy. He has blue skin. And that's um, really the only like conceit in the book. Um, he has blue skin and he lives in an ashram in, in Tamil Nadu, India. And he is believed to be the last incarnation of Vishnu. So Vishnu takes these incarnations um, on earth as humans to guide the world into whatever the next epoch is. So the next epoch is, um, this is the this is Kali Yuga, which is the dark age. And um, Kalki, the incarnation of Vishnu is supposed to lead us out of the dark age into the future. Where, we, uh, where the world will essentially renew itself and, and start over. And this little boy in India is believed to be Kalki, um, the, the last incarnation of Vishnu, who is going to lead us to the next age. And he grows up, um, we start the novel at the age of 10 and he grows up um, to the age of 22 and he loses his faith along the way um he he starts to doubt whether he is Kalki or not. He starts to doubt whether he's um, Vishnu's incarnation or not. And he uh, loses his faith and the book is asking questions about what religion is, what spirituality is, what belief is, what faith is, um, and what we do when we don't believe in ourselves anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: When reading uh your this novel was amazing, by the way. When reading Blueskin Gods, it's very reminiscent of the days of tent revivals in the South, um, and where people would flock to because they were searching for something, uh, be it deliverance and redemption or healing. And this being your your second novel, you chose to go heavier on the role of religion plays in people's lives and decisions than you did in a marriage of a thousand lives. What? do you think is the pull for you to write about how religion is used for control and power?
1: I mean, the pull is really that we're living through it right now. Mm -hmm. That, that um, since, you know, even since marriage of a thousand lies came out, we went through the Trump election. We went through um, just (laughs) recession after recession, like mini recession after mini recession. And, the defunding of planned parenthood the de- you know like the 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 reversal of a lot of um queer and trans protection mm-hmm. in legislature and honestly i think it's all so much related to religion i think it's 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 related to um the hold that religion still has on the american imagination and i think it's um I think it's harmful. I think it's harmful for the most part, but it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. right? like, religion. Doesn't have to be harmful, but for some reason in the recent past, it has been right in, in almost every way it has been extremely harmful. And, um and so I was thinking about a lot of that. I think I was also thinking about the rise of um, fundamentalist Hinduism in India, where, mm-hmm you know the the bjp took power and after they took power religious minorities were under attack in in lots of ways both like physically spiritually um economically um psychologically and you know christians were under attack muslims especially were under attack um jews uh which are a very small minority in india were under attack are under attack Um, all is still going on and so i was thinking about all of those things and looking at how um how religion is it could be a force for good but is actually right now in this day and age being used as a force for evil mm-hmm. uh in so many ways and and so i wanted i wanted to write about that i wanted to address it I felt like I I couldn't not address it Mm
2: -hmm. and yeah we thought it was very it was very very effective you know each and every one of us believes in something or not believe in anything but I feel like if you read the novel you would have a certain feeling about how things should be done or how things are not being done correctly Mm -hmm.
0: It definitely is talking about like how you can get to a place of your truth and and or seeking out the truth and what you what the damage of that can cause. Like when you find out the truth, sometimes it's not always the thing that you want to know. Right? right. And it could c- create a whole nother realm of problems, because often, you know, I always wonder. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar. There's a television show called A Good Place. And it oh, really, a <laughs> I have rewatched that series like a thousand times, but it always uh, amazes me when you sit and you think about like, what would life look like after death? And the things that you have been told and you realize like, nope, it's something totally different of how that could like shift your, your whole thought process especially if you were to think about those things now if somebody was just to come and reveal and say no what you thought was true what you've been told was true all of this time actually has been a lie and we see that play out throughout this novel
2: so you have laced this novel by stories like the ramayana um, religious and traditional aspects like the mention of vishnu and krishna stories What was the process of placing these important markers in your novel that allows you to explore like Hinduism and being Tamil in the most effective way?
1: Well, I did a lot of research. Um, I think I did about three years of just Uh research, just reading. Um, I read every Hindu scripture that was available in translation um, in English. That was a lot. It, it's actually quite a lot of a scripture. Lot. Um, I read everything that I could find about Hinduism that was critical. So um, I I especially read a lot about anti-castist literature, um, anti-castist scholarship. Um, and that was important to me because I wanted to make sure that Hinduism, you know, I was using it in a, in a way that was both critical and, um, exploratory. I didn't just want to continue the violence of using, like, Hindu texts, um, in a way that was harmful to, um, like, communities that were being oppressed already in India. So, um, so yeah, it was, just a, it was just a ton of research. I, uh, it was a, it was a long, it took a long time. <laughs> Let's just say that. Um, it took a long, long time to, to do the research. Um, and then it was also, you know, a lot of self-reflection about my own upbringing and what I was told and what I was told to believe, um, and, you know, whether or not I still believe those things. I was raised Hindu um, and my I, I had this weird experience where my parents got more and more religious as I grew up, which is usually like the opposite of what happens is, you know, people get more and more progressive. But um, my parents specifically and and the community around them got more and more religious. And I think maybe they were reacting to uh post Clinton administration, you know, Bush administration 9-11 backlash where um brown people were suddenly under attack again and our our place in the US was being questioned uh constantly and and I felt like a lot of uh brown immigrants turned to religion post nine eleven um as a as a as a bomb, as a salve. But so I, I watched that happen. And um, I was, you know, I, I started to get interested in, in Hindu mythology at that time. And so I was, I was already doing a lot of research, essentially. Um, I, I had been doing research since I was like 10 years old, right. Um, just like, you know, gathering all the stuff for a novel. I didn't know I was going to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the last three years uh, of of writing the novel I I was doing really really intensive research um, and I'm really glad I read the texts finally uh, I I actually like sat down and and read them um, front to back because in Hinduism um, reading of the text reading of scripture is not a focal point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: um, it's, it's just like, do you do you do the rituals? Do you do, you know, do you do prayer? Do you do the rituals? Do you keep the traditions? That's really all that, that the religion is. Um, It's not about scripture at all. So, so I'm, I'm really glad that I got to read it and to read it critically.
0: Right. What did you find about I guess, yourself when reading that text and in regards to how you were brought up and what you may or may not continue to apply to your life?
1: What I learned was that there are way more ways to be Hindu than I realized. Um, I was told, you know, there are several, like, you know, two or three ways to be Hindu. Um, But really, there are Many, many, many more ways. Um, Hinduism is an ancient, ancient religion, you know, five, seven, maybe seven thousand years old. Yeah. And it's a uh, part of it is indigenous to the Indian subcontinent, part of it has been brought from invading forces um you know migrations etc so it's it's a conglomeration of many 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 migrations um into into the area and it's a malleable tradition. it's it's flexible, it has changed a lot and I didn't know that before um, before I started doing the research. I had no idea how much Hinduism had changed and especially had changed in response to invasion and colonization. Um, and before that, you know it it uh, it encompassed atheism, which I did not know.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there
1: is a way to there you know you can be a hindu atheist because hinduism allows for and makes space for atheism within it which no one talks about Uh, it is an ancient practice and no one really like understands that that's a that that's really a thing like yoga for example is a sect is, a, is a, um, a smaller sect of Hindu practice that is more agnostic than atheist, okay. but it's not theist. Yes. Um, and so like, you know, yoga is deriving from a Hindu practice that that focuses on on um, transcending the body mm-hmm. and transcending uh, the material existence that we all are trapped in. And so, like, you know, there's, like, um, Gnostica Hinduism, which is, like, a- atheistic Hinduism. There's yoga. There's other um, mm-hmm. ways to experience the spirituality, which I, like, no one told me about, you know, this was not something that was, that was, there was not knowledge that was given. It was knowledge that had to be sought out.
2: That's crazy yeah. to me. <laughs> like, I think, like, that's the biggest learning of the of the night, kids, like, <laughs> <laughs> i I love world world religion like when I was growing up, people thought that I was kinda you know i'm I'm weird, but I love world religion. I was especially at um interested in like the Hindu stories I love the Ramayana, like I was reading them, and I'm like, so when that was in in your in your story, and I was like, oh she's putting it in like. In like so seamlessly and it's kind of like oh you get a, a little story in a bigger story mm. but it still applies to what's happening that was really hard because those stories are very complex they're like so layered in every single way all those characters have like 17 personalities 17,000 <laughs> names right That's, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed because like you read all the text from start to finish that in itself is a is a feat that's a feat
1: i have to say i just want to say that um the ramayana and the mahabharata all have soap opera versions that like aired on indian tv um in the 90s and Mm -hmm. those episodes are on youtube and they have subtitles and they're fantastic (laughs) (laughs) oh man there ain't nothing see? like
0: a good, messy story. That <laughs> yes. Like cling to that, that attaches Like, you. girl,
2: don't go out of the circle. <laughs> <laughs> what is so hard about that? Anyway. There's so many
0: love triangles, <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, a quick question. When you were on the show back in 2020, this was when we found out that this book would soon see the light of day in the following year. At what point where were you? So this was what May I think when we spoke to you. What point were you in May? Had you already finished this book?
1: Yes, I had um I think I sold the book in November of 2019. Mm. So I had like signed the contract. I was done with it. I was doing like final edits I think with the with Soho Press with my editor Mark Doden. Um and it was mostly just, like, line edits, just, like, things that he, you know, we were, like, okay, should really, like, should he say this at this particular moment, or is it something else? Like, is this the right word? You know, we were, like, at that point where we were really, like, honing in on words and and sentences and, and like, punctuation. So we were pretty far along.
2: Mm-hmm. See, and here we are. <laughs> so fanaticism can en- engulf any type of nation whether it's a fake god a celebrity or a political candidate people go far and wide to defend protect and do whatever this person says dark says that da- or command what do you um ex- what what do you want um ex- to explore in this phenomenon with your characters um can you speak more on why was this one of the themes that you choose to revolve this story in
1: I've, I think I've been fascinated for a long time about characters who are told to do a particular thing, mm. who buy into a particular ideology, mm. um, whether it's like in Marriage of a Thousand Lies, somebody who has bought into a, a heterosexist ideology, or in Blue Skinned Gods, where he's bought into a Hindu um, supremacy ideology, or um, or, you know, other um, w- books that I've been writing and working on where there are other ideologies at play. What I'm interested in is what is how people subvert, mm. question, challenge ideologies that have been given to them, because I'm also interested in how real life people, subvert question and challenge the ideologies that have been given given to them um how how queer people from the South and the Midwest like how do they come out mm. how do they you know sh- throw off the the damage that they've been dealt by their families and um, leave their communities behind mm. to come out how do uh, immigrants, leave their entire worlds behind and come to a completely new world completely new country completely new rules and how do they build a new life for themselves Mm -hmm. and i've always been fascinated with people who start over who are willing to start over um so and i'm also like fascinated with the ways in which ideology and and um community leave their scars
2: mm.
1: on the same people who choose who choose to leave them behind.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, when you when you're an immigrant and you travel to a new place, you're also carrying scars right. from the old place. Um, And you're carrying desires and, and fears and all of these other things, but, but the damage that the other place has done to you is real. And it, it plays out through your entire life and through the life of your kids.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That
1: intergenerational trauma is real and it is my, like, you know, it is my obsession right now. (laughs) I think it's always been my obsession.
2: Yeah, we were just talking about this earlier cuz now that I have a child I'm like, how do I stop this this cycle <laughs> of, of abuse and bs? <laughs> but it's it's harder, it's harder now, you know, cuz it's so it's it's still prevalent whatever whatever people are fighting for or whatever people are going through, it's not going away. So mm-hmm. it you know, I think educating yourself or awareness is one step, but it's it's bigger than all of us combined, I think.
0: Yeah. And it's something to watch your character, Kalki, like, go through the process of trying to, you know, he's gaining this new knowledge and trying to figure out what to do with it and if it's true or not and and what, you know, the, the end process and even wonder after you close the book of what their life looks like after going through all of these different, like, many transformations into learning who he who he is
2: yeah because I feel like like if I was just I always think when I read a book if that was me like how would I be I feel like it's a sort of like a rebirth of your own self Mm -hmm. almost or if you choose what to keep from that like you know if you believe in like you have you can acquire something from your past life it's like did you learn from your past life are you gonna bring this to your new life Mm -hmm. I think all of us go through that rebirth you know small or big or whatever we choose. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it always plays in, in my mind when I read these people. I call them my people in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so nature versus nurture has always been up for debate when talking about how somebody turns out as an adult. You showed us that it can be both, but most importantly, how our environment can really shape us, how we think, communicate, and move in the world. What was the considerations for when creating characters like Aya and Kalki and how their relationship or the lack of their off materialize in the story?
1: Well I'm that age where all of my friends are having kids. <laughs> <laughs> everyone around there's so many babies um and i'm I'm happily child free, but I have been watching all of my friends have kids and. It's really, like, I've been so surprised that it's so much of a dice throw. Like, you don't know what you're getting. You think you do, but you don't. You don't. Like, you don't at all. And it is, you know, that that baby is a person. And they are hardwired in certain ways that you cannot control. And they're going to get half of their input from the world and from school and from their friends and from other things besides you that you you just absolutely cannot control this little person that you make and that was that that's been the great thing for me to like just watch it all happen and also be like okay so <laughs> if Kelki like what who do i want Kalki to be and then who is his father? Like how, what kind of influences does he have?
2: Mm.
1: And I really wanted a father who, um, who was controlling and who was borderline evil. Yeah. You know, really <laughs> just, um maybe evil is not the right word. Selfish. He's selfish. Misguided. He, he's greedy and he's selfish and he is self-centered. Like he just cares about what, he wants Mm -hmm. and not about Kalki and Kalki himself I was really um taken by this idea I I loved Lord the Flies as a child I don't know why um you know young boys killing each other for for (laughs) I was like okay yeah I like this this is this is good um I am into this I don't know why I liked it but I did I I Loved Lord of the Flies. I thought that there was something to be said about the message that some like that most of us are born neutral. Mm-hmm. We are Ralph and we can go either way. We, you know, are are um you know, we're we're sort of like living life with input from both the both the angel and the devil on our shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then there's some that are. That just like bent evil right mm-hmm. like they're they are bent toward chaos and murder and awfulness and like they get off on hurting other people right. and then there are some people that are just kind of good they just want everybody to get along <laughs> they just want everybody to be happy yeah. and they are you know they just want to be helpful and the Lord of the Flies, what it does, I think, really well is position these three kinds of people against each other and sees what happens mm-hmm. so i was I was really thinking about that when I was writing Lucian Godson, and Gadsden. I was like, well, you know, Kelki is mm-hmm. sort of somewhere between good and neutral like he he is he wants good for people like he he cannot wrap his head around manipulating people mm. and he cannot wrap his head around being mean to people he cannot wrap his head around um knowingly deceiving them mm. so his father knows that and so his father I think if Kelki had been a more evil kid, his father had would have probably brought him in a little bit more onto the the deceit. Mm-hmm. But um because he wasn't, because he was a good kid, uh in general, his father was like, Okay, he needs to believe that he's doing the right thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I need to do everything I can to keep him believing that he's doing the right thing. So as long as he's 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 believing that then I can extract what I need to extract from him. And I don't know I, I I think like I love writing evil characters. I think they're really fun to write. Um a lot of people were pissed because they didn't know why um Aya was evil and I, I my response to that is I don't think evil pe- most evil people have a reason for being evil. I think some dysfunctional people have a reason for being dysfunctional, mm. but that's not the same as being evil, <laughs> right? <laughs> like it's true. not the same thing. You can be angry. You can be, a, you know, um. you can say terrible things to your kids. You can say uh, whatever to your partner because you're frustrated, but it's not the same thing as being, actively manipulative mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like that takes a type of forethought and a type of uh calculating yes. evilness that like there's no there's no reason for that
0: yeah i i've worked with children for close to 20 years and there are some <laughs> that you're just like this this is different like mm-hmm. i don't know where your mom and daddy got you from like I don't know. I just don't know. You you should not be here. Somebody mm. need to do an exorcism or something because there, it just seems like this is a behavior that cannot be learned, that you, this is just something that is in something, someone. So I get that, that, that evil of like, no one probably has ever done anything to this child, but there is just, it's just already there. And you're like, what? What is this? What is this? And I, I can definitely see Aya like having Kalki be in that place where he is where he doesn't know what's going on in order to keep him like this pure-minded individual you know because that helps you embody that god-like image of yourself right so you know like this is who i am like i haven't done anything to anybody and it's like oh you've you've caused some damage you just don't know what kind of damage that you've that you've done yeah. by way of your your so-called father.
2: And when his life was kind of like falling apart, like the people are- Revealing themselves. Yes, and also like the people are leaving his life for different reasons. That was really heartbreaking for me. And it's kind of, and you know, like people can read about it, but that was like, you know, like different loves, like the motherly love and the romantic love, you know, that 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 to me was like the- that those are the things that like pure people look for like you know he was just always like trying to like find love mm-hmm. and he found these loves in different places and mm-hmm. different people and those were like gone mm-hmm. and then you know like what is left in in me now like he really had to like bring out something from him to be like wait l- let me take a look at what's going on with my life here you know like that was devastating to me but you know i can talk to that (laughs) and like i can like process that in myself
0: (laughs) so there there are a lot of themes that you have just like throughout your your book um and one in particular is the subject of duality which is is really threaded through the book in my mind and I was just curious if you'll touch on your exploration of this particular theme and showing it play out in the character's desire to truly want to believe something despite knowing the truth.
1: Um I think ever since I was a child I and I know this is true of a lot of Asian families, South Asian and East Asian, that we're told that we're supposed to have one version of ourselves for ourselves and our family and those that are closest to us and one version for the public Mm -hmm. the world and so it's like it we're always supposed to be two-faced in certain ways Mm -hmm. um and I I was very much you know part of part of that generation that was told that as 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 a survival strategy too, for immigrants who were like, okay, you're supposed to assimilate outside of the home. But once you step into the home, you are part of the old culture kind of thing. Um, So it's that duality has been my entire life. Mm -hmm. It really has. It just because of immigration, Uh, And also because I, you know, grew up as a queer kid where you imported that duality without even realizing it where you're like, okay, I'm weird, but I don't know exactly how I'm weird. So I'm just going to act like everybody else in the hopes that no one notices that I'm weird. Mm. And that is another duality. That's another way in which you you split yourself off from who you are. And then,, uh, I think it, <laughs> this is a weird thing to say, but I think teaching is another form of being dual at all times. Um you know being a teacher in the classroom means that you are exhibiting and embodying authority and comfort and empathy and you know we are we are service uh in so many ways while also like protecting your private self Mm. and we are in service to students in so many ways that you know depends on the student but we're we're parents we are counselors we are um you know we're more than just teachers we are all, we're friends we are colleagues we're peers we're mentors we're all of these things that can get really exhaustive but at the same time there is a way in which you have to protect your your the core of yourself mm-hmm. in the classroom and outside of the classroom in your identity as a teacher Mm -hmm. uh so duality has existed in so many ways in in my life for for a long time um not to mention the fact that i'm i'm bisexual so like there's a duality in that there i'm non-binary i'm genderqueer, so there's a duality in that so there's just there's just a lot there's a lot of duality going on so i mean clearly this is a (laughs) lot It it had a big impact on on the novel (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah and even like the characters that were you know like even in in, in in Kalki like how he chooses to to um in the beginning like the affinity to Lakshman and then like when Lakshman was gone then there was Rupa but then there's, there was another person that he was like oh I find you beautiful and I'm interested in you and then there's a story about that person too so you know it's like it's in every aspect um, of him growing up, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was uh, reading this book, the first thing that came to mind were these um, child goddesses from from Nepal. Mm-hmm. And I was telling Veronica about this like early on. I'm like, you know what? This is not the first time I've heard like a child god. You know, like I was freaking out because in my head I'm like, there's this like part in my head that you know, there's this information that gets stored there for like you know trivia night so and this is one of them so i'm like oh my god like would 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 it make an appearance and then yes so for those people that don't know about this these are called the kumari from Kathmandu, nepal and they believe that the goddess embodies them until they reach the age of puberty and it leaves them before they have their like their period so and Kalki meets somebody like this at some point in his journey. Um, some critics have demanded that the tradition be stopped since it's robbing the children of their childhood. Maybe to the Western world, this might seem crazy, I don't know, absurd or abusive, but what this um, but can you speak about like how kind of these phenomena affect um, you know, people people like in 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 Nepal and like you know the power of religion and tradition that can bind a country such as you know countries in east southeast asia or south or south asia
1: mm-hmm. i think for i mean even for co- uh for countries that haven't been colonized right like thailand um there is a sense of neo colonization there where they have uh, they are colonized essentially economically. Mm-hmm. Right. It includes Nepal. This includes Thailand. This includes a lot of the other South Asian countries that haven't officially been colonized. Um, that they are economically colonized in that in that they depend so much on uh, European and American tourism to mm-hmm. to um you know keep the country running and that gives the western world so much power over these places Mm -hmm. um so there's like that power structure there there's also a resultant um uh I guess um response in in terms of the country to to cling to old practices Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. whether they're healthy or good or not uh, it doesn't seem to matter like everything becomes day and night where we have like, okay, this is what the colonists want, this is what the imperialists want. And so this is our culture. So we're going to cling to it whether it's good or not, like without any sort of critical lens. And this happens, you know, in, in a lot of um like South, South Asian countries where you know we are clinging to patriarchal traditions just because they are they they are our traditions which are against the, colon- <laughs> you know, the colonizer's traditions. And without, like, any sort of critical um, uh, thought or critical uh, response about, like, should we have these traditions? Right. And that's that's how I kind of place this Kumari tradition, where, like, there's a question about whether it's healthy for the children, mm-hmm. um, for sure. And then there's another question about, like, the gender implications of this like you know once they start bleeding they are no longer a vessel for the feminine energy of the universe which i'm like if it's a feminine energy of the universe wouldn't it be okay with bleeding and like you know it's just it seems bizarre to me it seems male or originated it seems like a man thought of these rules Um, And I don't mean to be (laughs) impertinent, but (laughs) it does seem like if a woman was coming up with with this tradition that she would have thought like, oh, you know, this is this is a natural part of a woman's life. Like you start bleeding. And like, why is it that once you become a woman, the feminine energy of the goddess leaves you like that makes no sense to me. That makes absolutely no sense to me, and 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 so I don't know. Like, I think writing in this space is really tricky because you're you're trying to balance like, okay, these are indigenous practices; these are important indig like pre colonial practices. These this is the way that colonization has shifted those practices or tried to shut down those practices. And then also, like, let's take a progressive, you know, queer positive, uh, feminist positive view toward these ancient practices and try to figure out, like, is it actually a good thing or not? Or, like, should we be doing this or not? Like, we, I don't think we should be doing things just because they're old, Mm -hmm. um, and I and I believe this about a lot of a lot of different things. Um, just because they're old doesn't mean they're good. Uh, they need to still be looked at in a critical way. And just because they're new doesn't mean they're good either. Right. You know, all of it needs to be looked at in a critical way. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: But you know, but if you're curious, there is a, a story run by NPR and BBC about all of this. And yeah, because like there were interviews about these like girls and be like, yeah, I didn't know how to cross the street like cars. I was afraid of cars because my feet didn't touch the ground for 11 freaking years, you know, and then like, I don't know how to talk to people like I can't handle criticism because everybody was praising me for 11 years straight. So Mm -hmm. when I went to school, I was dumb, stupid and like unfriendly, you know, like the the little things, Mm -hmm. (laughs)
0: little things. So um in the book it appears that uh doubt takes center stage um in a very clever way uh despite the truth being revealed so early on um uh, about Kalki um being divine or not uh it leaves the reader to decide for themselves if they are or they aren't uh, was this what you wanted to do to us when we when we were reading the book, like <laughs> torture did, us forever? Because <laughs> I know it's strongly stated for one thing, but then there are other things that happen, and you're just you're like, hmm, I wonder which one is it. Is was that on purpose? Am I just you know reaching for for straws here, or, or was it intentional?
1: Um, it's definitely intentional. It, I, I, I didn't want that to be the central question of the story. Um, so that's why I I got rid of it. You know, it, it kind of strongly toward the beginning. Um, I wanted to address that issue, but I also wanted to leave it um a, a mystery in some ways because that's what it is to question religion and to question spirituality you never actually know
2: Mm -hmm.
1: like i might be an atheist but i don't know until i die what's about to happen i think i know Mm -hmm. and no one knows until you die what's about to happen right like we think that that's like the ultimate thing like once we die we're gonna we're gonna figure it out um and who knows who knows?
2: Maybe nothing happens.
1: Maybe nothing. <laughs> happens.
0: Or maybe it's like the good place. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time.
2: <laughs> Who maybe that's why your cat stares at you because he's like, bitch, this could be you. <laughs> 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 you know, so don't mistreat me. You never know. Yeah. Oh, man. That hurt a
0: nerve. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. So, uh, SJ we've come to the part of the interview that we started with you two years ago which we normally are asking every single guest be it an artist or an author we want to know their top five favorite books but we've already asked you that so what we want to know are are your top five favorite books that you are excited about be it your friends be it yourself that you might have coming out pretty soon (laughs) (laughs) and um, letting us know what is the haps that we should what should we be paying
1: attention to in the in the literary scene well my partner um who is a poet his name is jeff Vivier. um he has a book coming out next year um it's called us from nothing and it's a poetic history of humanity so he uh for six years tried to figure out the most important things that have ever happened in the universe so this is a poetry collection, uh, an epic poem that traces us from the Big Bang to a little bit in the future. So like 100 years in the future from now. Um, and I it was a blast, like, watching him go through this process of trying to figure out, like, is soap important enough? To- <laughs> 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 the invention of soap. Um, right now he's battling with the invention of GPS. Like, is it important enough to people That's like important. me? Yes. Unfortunately. <laughs> yes. I know. <laughs> it's like it, it has to be in there, I think. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, us from nothing, Jeff Bouvier. Absolutely. Um, I have a friend of mine who is, if any of you are editors <laughs> who are listening to this, um, a friend of mine is trying to, uh, sell a book called the plum queen. It, it her name is Laurel Lathrop and she is, can I swear? Yes.
0: yes. Vulgar Jesus for okay. a
1: reason. Uh, it, she's fucking amazing. She's a fucking amazing writer and she's trying to sell this book. Um, it's just gone, you know, out right now and it is it is amazing. It's it takes place in the early 20th century um, in the um plum orchard in California and it deals with uh female friendships and queerness and um the turn of the century in various ways. I'm excited about this novel Bewilderness that just came out by my friend Karen Tucker. Uh, it deals with the opioid epide- epidemic. Um, and it's really important, and it's really beautifully written. And I've, been, I just, I love it. I love it so much. Um, Look at, you said Karen Tucker. Karen Tucker.
0: I was, I was searching
1: that one. Okay, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, you, you all should have her on the podcast because she's fucking amazing. <laughs> um, what, what? Uh, oh no. Oh, yeah. And, and I guess mine. <laughs> um, I have two books coming out next year. Um, one is coming out in May. It's called Shakti. It's a uh, middle grade fantasy graphic novel about a um, Indian-American witch mm-hmm. who is calling on the powers of the goddess Durga and the goddess Kali to help her battle a coven of witches in Amherst, Massachusetts. And it's oh so in Massachusetts. Excited.
0: Look at yes. that. Yeah, mm. we might have to bring you back on because you know we do the little kid stuff too. So yes. Yeah. Oh that's um, so that's
1: coming out in May. It's uh I just got the final proof for it. So it's going out to um for advanced reader copies. Like I think today. I think it went out today. Um so I'm really, really excited to get get the arcs for that um and then i also have a short story collection coming out in 2023 um in the fall which is called the goth house experiment so,
0: yeah. their pins just keep or doing this <laughs> oh man well it has definitely been a treat um you know like to be able to have and share this space with you on this evening. Once again, um, we are just so, so thankful to you for helping us kind of like start our way to being able to talk to amazing writers such as yourself. And we just want to say thank you so much for agreeing to come back onto our show.
2: Yes. It's been, you know, it's a full circle moment. Like we've been talking about, but you know, like I'm always excited to read what you've been writing. I think you know everything that we've read is amazing. I'm excited for that middle grade because that is my I'm a middle grade. So <laughs> I love I love sci-fi. I love um I I love all of that. So I I'm excited to see what where that leads me and who else I would meet along the way. My people. <laughs>
1: people I would love yeah. to come back on when it comes out and, and talk to you all about it, because this has been amazing. Thank you so much for having me and, 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 you know, congratulations on, on all of the, all of the success that Walker Geniuses has had. That's amazing to watch. Thank you yes. so much. uh You know, you're a part of it
0: and, and we are so grateful again for it and, Um, on that note we hope that you have a wonderful rest of your evening that you can enjoy the rest of your drink your beverage Mm -hmm. and (laughs) settle in and and get to teaching those kids later on in the in the coming weeks yes (laughs) (laughs) all right SJJ take take care have a wonderful rest of your night you too bye bye thank you again We hope you enjoyed our show. Make
2: sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Vulgar Geniuses.
0: Our theme song that you're nodding your head along to was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Sean Dammit. That's S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T.
2: Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast.
0: See you soon. Deuces.